Good morning and happy Easter to you. The text this morning on which our sermon is based is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. And those verses say this, Jesus is speaking and he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Or which of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, this may not be your typical Easter Sunday scripture text. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it drives us to the very heart of Easter, and I promise you by the end, you'll see how. But for now, before we can talk about the resurrection, we've got to talk about prayer. And in particular, why this passage, one of the most encouraging passages on prayer in the whole Bible, is actually often somewhat discouraging to us. Jesus is inviting us to persistently and confidently ask God for anything. It's very open-ended, right? Ask, seek, knock. And yet for many of us, Jesus' open invitation to ask anything doesn't inspire confidence, but rather doubt. In Matthew 6, one chapter before this, we've already seen Jesus teach on prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And in, and in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us what to pray, what to ask for in prayer. He tells us, pray to our Father in heaven, Looks like asking for God's purposes to be accomplished and for our physical, spiritual, relational needs to be met. What are we to pray for? There, Jesus said, ask that God's name would be honored everywhere. Hallowed be your name. He said, ask that God would fully reign in complete righteousness, peace, and joy. Your kingdom come. And transform the world so that the perfect realities of heaven would actually be uh, occurring here on earth, reflected on earth. So he says, your will be done, Father, as it is in heaven. Then he shifts to more uh, personal needs for us, physical, spiritual, relational needs, where he says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, our daily needs. Forgive us our sins. So deal with our relational brokenness and then protect us from evil or the evil one, so our spiritual needs. And, and many of us might say, yes, the Lord's Prayer, right. I, I have an understanding of that. Praise God and petition God. Uh, express awe to God, but also ask for things from God, right. Now, maybe you know that. Maybe you know that in prayer, we are seeking to depend on God for everything. And you might have a basic idea of the content of prayer. But why is it then that you and I find it so difficult to pray? Well, in Matthew 6, Jesus tells us what to ask for in prayer. Here in Matthew 7, he's telling us how to ask in prayer. He's taught the content of prayer, but now he's getting at the very character of prayer. And it's the character of prayer that we find so difficult because here Jesus asks us to pray or calls us, even commands us to pray with persistence and confidence. 
First, let's look at persistence. He asks, he says, ask with persistence in verse seven and eight. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. We are to pray with persistence. And you can see from both the message these verses give us and the method by which Jesus delivers the message, it's all about persistence in many respects. Throughout this whole passage, the word ask occurs five times. And then he also adds, for good measure, two other words twice, seek, seek, and knock, knock. So ask, seek, knock, that rhythm occurs twice. Ask, seek, knock, ask, seek, knock. You can see that Jesus is telling us that when we pray, we're to pray with persistence. Ask, 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 he says. He tells us to keep knocking while he's essentially at the same time knocking that message into our skulls through constant repetition. He's not just telling us that we can ask for things, but that we must ask for things, and we must do so repeatedly and persistently. And at first, this might seem to fly in the face of what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, right before he tells us what to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He said the religious pagans, when they pray to their gods, they use constant repetition in their prayer. He says they heap up empty phrases, believing they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, Jesus says. Well, isn't praying persistently, praying about the same things again and again, a repetitious prayer that Jesus warned us not to pray? When Jesus tells us to pray persistently in Matthew 7, he's telling us something different than praying with the mindless repetition of the pagans in Matthew 6. They were praying superstitiously and transactionally believing that if they said many of the right words many times, the gods would be obliged to listen to them. They would have to listen to them, have to help them, have to give them what they asked for. But God can't be bribed. We're not here in praying persistently, seeking to convince God that he must give us what we ask for. In fact, Jesus shows us and gives us a very different reason for persistence in verse 7 and 8. You don't have to try to get God's attention, because when you pray, you will be answered. He promises. You could pray uh, one thing one time, and he promises there will be an answer. You could pray the same thing many times, and he promises there will be an answer. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus said, you should ask because you'll receive. You should seek because you will find. You should knock because the door will be opened. Why pray with persistence? Because God will persistently answer you. He promises. That's his promise to us. That's why this is actually one of the most encouraging passages about prayer in the Bible. It's wildly open-ended. Ask something. Seek something. Knock. It will be given to you. Ask anything and God will answer. Jesus is essentially teaching us to pray like little children. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus refers to little children as those who receive the kingdom. And he's not simply saying little children alone. He says people who receive what he teaches like little children. And so here he's teaching us also then to pray to the king of the kingdom like little children. And how do little children ask for things? 
constantly, repeatedly, persistently. They don't hold back. Like my nieces, when they want dessert every night after dinner, uh, they'll keep asking until they get it. They know they need to eat their vegetables, but sometimes to them, they just kind of move the vegetables around on their plates with their fork. Somehow to them, that's the same idea as eating them. They think, now I should get dessert. But whether they actually get dessert or not, they are gonna receive an answer. They're always going to get an answer. They keep asking and they're gonna get an answer. It, the answer might be no until you eat your vegetables and then yes when you do, but either way, they will get an answer one way or the other. And that's kind of like the promise here. Uh, but that's why you and I struggle, isn't it? It's why we struggle with persistence in prayer because it doesn't really seem like that's what God does, right? He, God doesn't always seem to answer. The promise here is ask anything, you will receive an answer. But it doesn't seem like God answers us. It seems like we could ask and ask and ask and only get silence. A while ago, I was talking to a 20-year-old who was mad at God because uh, she said her, her, God wouldn't reveal himself to her agnostic friend. Her friend had heard the gospel and then rejected it. And the young woman was upset because it seemed that God had allowed that to happen. And so I asked her, well, besides telling your friend the gospel, have you ever prayed for your friend? Prayed that your friend would receive the gospel. Prayed that she would receive salvation in Christ. And she said, well, I did pray once, but nothing happened. So I got mad at God and I stopped praying for my friend. But a few years ago, I was talking to an older woman from a church I used to go to, and she was in her late 70s, and she said with great joy that recently her younger brother had become a believer. But her younger brother is, she's in her late 70s, he's in his early 70s. And she said, I'm so grateful, God is so good, I prayed to God for 40 years that my brother might be saved. So one person prays once and gives up, and the other person uh, uh, prayed for 40 years and didn't give up. But she prayed because she thought she that God was good. Why did that older woman persist in prayer? The reason she told me she persisted in prayer for 40 years is because she believed with confidence that God really cares. And that's the second thing that Jesus says connected to persistence is confidence in verses 9 to 11. It's the second reason Jesus gives us in this passage to keep praying. Not only will you be answered when you pray, as we've seen, but you will be answered because God is a good father. So we should pray and can pray persistently and can pray confidently because God is a good father. It says in verse 9 to 11, Or which of you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says that in comparison to biological fathers uh, who are, by comparison to God, evil, God gives good gifts to his children. So if biological 
parents give good gifts to their children, how much more the perfect heavenly father? That's Jesus' argument from the lesser to the greater. So he's saying, if your child asks you for a snack, you don't give him stones and snakes. If you do, you can bet that over time your child would lose confidence in you. Over the years, that little kid who persistently, repeatedly, constantly asked you for good things might stop asking you for anything because you can't be trusted if he asks for a snack and you give him stones and snakes. You know, I know of a, a son who, while growing up, kept asking his father to play or asking his father to teach him how to do things, asking his father if he could help him do things in the garage so he could learn and be with his father. And the father was a good man, um, and he wanted good things for his son, but the father tended to keep his distance from his son, and he didn't really answer him. So the son would ask, but the father never really answered. The father would do things. He would provide for the son. He would provide good things like food and shelter and clothing. But eventually, the son stopped asking the father for anything else, and their relationship became gradually more distant. The father hadn't realized that the son needed not just the basic good gifts that he could give to him, but also the loving presence of the father too. The son stopped asking persistently because he couldn't ask constant or confidently. He didn't have confidence that his father wanted to answer him. For many of us, isn't this how we feel about God? We ask for healing. We ask for help. We ask for provision. We, we ask to feel loved, um, to have good relationships, to become stronger as a person, to have hope. And yet, in many seasons of our lives, it seems that God is there and he is, or he is not there and he is silent. We're knocking, but no one's home. He doesn't seem to be ready to hear us, ready to be with us, ready to give us the good gifts that we ask for. And so we lose our confidence and then we lose our persistence as a result. We just aren't really that sure that God is really all that good. But here is where we have to confront ourselves and ask if maybe we're overconfident, not in God, but in that we really know what's best for us. We really know what we most need. And so we struggle to trust that God might know best what we most need. Unlike an earthly parent who is flawed and can make mistakes, God is completely and entirely good. It's the message of the Bible. And that's what makes us feel even worse when we approach him in prayer and he seems silent or he seems not to give us what we asked for. He's supposed to be truly and totally good, isn't he? Megan, uh, well, I've had to learn a lot about this from other believers who are further along than I am in my walk with God, because I struggle just as much as anyone to pray with persistence and confidence, asking God uh, for anything in prayer. Megan Hill is a wife, mother, and writer, and she said that her dad, who was a pastor, taught her how to persist in prayer. As a little girl, she would travel around with him to prayer meetings for their church or to go visit people in their homes and to pray with them. And in praying together with all these believers, she started to write down the things as a little girl. She wrote down the things that all the other people in the church were praying because she wanted to see if God would actually answer them. And she said that over the course of her childhood, she realized that some requests were answered and some seemed not to be answered. But what she saw in these people of faith was that they kept praying anyway. 
and they seem to find great joy in doing it, whether they got the answers they directly asked for or not. And she said what her dad taught her and told her over and over, over and over again, she found to be correct. Her dad would tell her, all God's answers to our prayers are either yes or let me give you something better. All God's answers to our prayers are either yes or let me give you something better. As Pastor Tim Keller has put it, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. He will give us an answer to our prayer, but he'll give us what we need according to what he knows we need. But what he wants is for us to relate with him, for us to ask him, for us to actually be with him in the process. As one of my favorite writers from the 1800s, John Newton said, delight yourself in the Lord. So the asking isn't just give me my stuff, God, but it's Lord, I want to be with you in this. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a quote from Psalm 37 verse 4. So far, Newton says, God will give you the desires of your heart so far as you are not mistaken in your views. When we are mistaken, a denial is a mercy. When we are mistaken, a denial is a mercy. Here's the thing to see, that when God seems to deny us what we ask him in prayer, he has still fulfilled his promise to answer us, has he not? Ask and you will receive an answer in the form of something that is good because he's a good father. That is the promise of Matthew 7, verse 7 to 11. You are promised an answer and you are promised that that answer will be good. So if God seems to deny you what you've asked, it is because he intends something better. And the denial of our request is actually a mercy. So even a no can be a good answer. Do you see this from Matthew 7? As commentator Frederick Bruner has pointed out, Jesus says that God will give good things. Several times it says good gifts or good things to those who ask him. Not all things that they ask for. God will give us good things, not all things, only good things. So if he's withholding something, it's for our good. If he gives us something, it's for our good. To say that Jesus tells us to pray persistently and confidently isn't to say that you must labor strenuously in your prayers just in order to get God to hear you. It's, it's not that you must pray convincingly. God will, you will convince God to give you what you've asked or demanded or pleaded for. This passage is stressing that we must persistently and confidently ask only because God is relationally our good father who loves to graciously give us what is truly a good thing. And so he does so out of love. The emphasis is on the character of God who delights to hear from you and promises to give good to you. You know, the word ask, ask used in this passage carries with it the connotation that you can expect an answer. It's, it's to ask, or in some translations, you can say even to demand, with an understanding that when we ask God anything, in asking the question, we have also made a claim to receive an answer. If Jesus, Jesus is this, as if Jesus is saying this, go ahead, ask God anything, seriously, anything. Because whatever you ask for, you will receive something good because as he is your father who loves you, he actually puts himself on the hook to answer you. He puts himself under obligation. 
to respond to you. God isn't obligated to respond to us just because we try to convince him. That's not the point. We can't convince him because he doesn't need convincing. He's our loving father. He has put himself on the hook. He has already obligated himself to respond to you. In a similar teaching to Matthew 7, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says that we can almost be rude about it with God. He describes, uh, it's as if you go to your friend in the middle of the night, and you're knocking and knocking and knocking on their door. It's the middle of the night. You wake up your friend and his whole family. Uh, all the kids get woken up, and it's because you need a snack. You want to raid his kitchen and get some food. And so your friend really doesn't want to get out of bed, doesn't want to help you, and is truly finding you to be quite obnoxious in that moment. Uh, you've woken up him and his whole family in the middle of the night so you can steal his food. But it says in Luke 11 that because you keep asking with shameless audacity and persistence, your friend will eventually give you everything that you need. Jesus said it's like that. It's like you can actually be that rude in a way with God, and God doesn't care. We can ask with urgency, even to the point of demanding or pleading with God. And God is saying, look, with me, you can throw off all social conventions. Stop worrying about it if you're being annoying or if you ask too many times or if it seems like I haven't come to the door yet. Come to me anytime, day or night. Keep asking because I promise you I will answer and I promise you I will give you good things. He won't ignore you, but will give you good things. So ask persistently, ask openly for anything, fearlessly, confidently. God will not treat you shamefully for anything you ask. He won't shame you for continuing to ask for what you desire, even if he seems not to come to the door right away. He may not give you what you ask even when he does come to the door, because he may want to give you something far better. This isn't name it, claim it Christianity, because God gives us not all things we ask for, but all the good things that we need. And he gives to us according to his will, knowing what we need and knowing what we need, knowing what is best for us. But he wants us to come to him. It's the way he chooses to operate. He wants it to be a relationship in which we continue with him so that when we do receive something, we trust that we didn't make this happen, but he did in relationship to us. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. This is our confidence. We ask anything according to his will. So it all gets filtered. God filters it through his will. He says either yes or yes, I'm going to give you something better than what you just asked for. We can pray persistently and confidently with every expectation that God hears us and that we can pray with eager anticipation that he will answer us with the exact good thing that we actually most need. We said in Matthew 7 that the word ask is repeated five times, but so is the word give. There's a symmetry to it. Every time you ask, there is something given to you. Five times Jesus says ask, and five times it says he will give. He says, go ahead. Try your best to inconvenience me. Try to put me out. He says, this 
He says this because he, he wants us to see that when we ask our Father for what we want and for what we need, we will find that he is more than willing to put himself out for us, more than willing to get up in the middle of the night, more than willing to inconvenience himself for us in order to demonstrate his love for us. But how do we really know? What gives us absolute, utter confidence that when we ask God anything, he will truly answer us and he will always answer us with good things. Ask and you shall receive, Jesus said in this passage. But as the whole Bible shows, ask and you shall receive really means ask and you shall receive more than you ever asked for in the first place. As Ephesians puts it, that God will give us more than we ever asked or imagined. You know, there's two stories in the Gospels in which people get very sick and their families asked and pleaded with Jesus to come and to save their loved ones who were sick. But in both cases, Jesus delays in answering their requests and too much time passes in, in his delay and instead the people die. One of them is his good friend Lazarus, as described in John chapter 11, and the other is a 12-year-old girl in Mark chapter 5. The father of this little girl in Mark 5, it says, pleaded earnestly with Jesus. He finds Jesus. He goes through the city, tracks Jesus down, and pleads with Jesus earnestly to save his daughter from death. And Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, who are also Jesus' good friends, they send word to Jesus that Lazarus has gotten seriously ill, and they, they say, Jesus, please come and heal our brother. But with the little girl, Jesus is he's on the way to her house, and he gets mobbed by this large crowd who also wants him to help and heal them. And Jesus gets caught up healing some people in the crowd, one woman in particular. And while he's healing others, a messenger comes into the crowd where the father is still waiting to bring Jesus to the house. And he says to the father and to Jesus that the little girl has died. And while Jesus was helping others, he seemed not to be helping her. When this man had pleaded, Jesus, please save my daughter, heal her. Doesn't this seem to be the way that it happens with us sometimes? We pray for what we, what we want, and someone else gets the answer. This man pleaded with Jesus to heal his daughter, and someone else was the one who got healed. But Jesus says something shocking to the girl's father. He says, don't fear. She's not dead, but asleep. Now, when he arrives at the house, people are weeping and wailing because the girl really is dead. This, the same thing has happened by the time Jesus arrives at Mary and Martha's house. In this case, Jesus didn't delay several hours, but several days. Lazarus isn't just sick in bed and has passed away. He's already buried in the grave at this point. The funeral has actually started. Jesus arrives just in time for the funeral service. And yet Jesus says something shocking here as well. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he told the disciples, but I go to awaken him. He's fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. But a moment later, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus is dead. So when he says he's fallen asleep, just like with the little girl, they've actually died. And in this case, Jesus wasn't delayed by a crowd, but he intentionally delayed. And his reason is so shocking. It's one of the most shocking things in the whole story of John 11. When Jesus learned that Lazarus was sick, he knew that he would die. John 11, 5 and 6 says, Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister Martha and Lazarus. So 
as a result of his love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he already was. Two days longer. Jesus intentionally did not go and heal Lazarus. He intentionally delayed as an act of love, even though he knew that Lazarus was struggling with his life and Mary and Martha were grieving at the loss of their brother. And he says all of this is because of his love for them. How can that be? How can this delayed answer, this knocking but no responding, how can that be his love? In these stories, people are asking, they're seeking, they're knocking. They trusted that Jesus cared. They, they trusted that he loved them, that he had the power to do good things and would give them good things. And yet in both cases, the loved one died. If Matthew 7 has taught us anything so far, then the only reason Jesus didn't say yes to healing these sick friends was because he wanted to say yes to something even better. If he doesn't say yes to healing, then what he is saying yes to is something far better. And, and what could be better than being healed from a deadly sickness? Being healed from death itself. When Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, to the graveside of Lazarus, twice it says that he was deeply troubled and aggrieved in his spirit. He was angry and indignant at death and the sadness that he experienced from the loss of his good friend. What a powerful picture it is that we have of Jesus. Jesus seen hating death, even though he knows the next thing he's going to do is call Lazarus out of the tomb. He weeps, he cries, and he's angry that death is in the world. And so Jesus shows us that he came not simply to heal a momentary sickness, but to heal us from our mortal enemy. Death comes to all, but Jesus can overcome death for all. Don't you see? Jesus shows us. Jesus, Jesus didn't uh, save these grieving families from their, from their grief. He didn't give them what they asked for. He gave them something more because he loved them. To Jesus, death is more like being asleep than being annihilated. When Jesus comes to this little girl's house in Mark 5, this 12-year-old girl, and he finds her dead, he brings the father and mother and his disciples into the room, and he sits beside her bed, and he simply sits there, takes her hand, and says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic for, little girl, I say to you, arise. The phrase little girl might be to us, or like you and I saying, sweet, sweet child, time to get up. Sweet child, time to get up. And it says that immediately she got up and walked around the room. Do you see what Jesus did? He addressed her affectionately, sweet child, and then raises her from the dead easily. He, he acts like it's a normal Monday, like a parent going into a child's room on another sunny spring morning saying, honey, it's time to get up. But it is not a normal sunny morning. As Tim Keller pointed out, in that moment, Jesus Christ is facing the most formidable of human dilemmas. He is facing our death. And yet Jesus, with a little tug of his hand, lifts her up right through it. 
It's his way of saying, if I have you by the hand, if you know me through faith and grace, nothing can hurt you. Even death itself, when it comes to you, will be just like waking from a nice night's sleep. If I have you by the hand, even death, when it comes upon you, will only make you something greater. Nothing can hurt you. Be at peace. Friends, you and I right now are facing the COVID 19 pandemic disease. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus faced the pandemic of death, which doesn't just come to some people, but to all people. And he defeated it easily. This is the good news of Easter, of the resurrection life that Jesus came to give us. And how did he do it? When Jesus wept over his friend Lazarus and he bellowed at death, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in John 11, 33 and 38. He was deeply moved. So this, this wasn't just an internal feeling, but his love moved him into external action. Love has movement. And Jesus then went and raised Lazarus from the dead. He couldn't stand that Lazarus was dead. And he didn't just give resurrection life to Lazarus, but he said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we pray to the Father, when we persist, what confidence can we have in persisting with him? It's that Jesus himself, through rising from the dead, brings us into the Father's presence, makes it possible for us to ask anything because he conquered death. When Jesus was about to raise Lazarus, he turned to heaven and he thanked God the Father. And he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me in whatever you ask. Why can God hear us in our prayers? Because he hears Jesus in his. Jesus, the one who brings people back from the dead. When it came to Lazarus' death, Jesus asked and sought and knocked in prayer to his heavenly Father, and the Father easily reversed Lazarus' death as if it was just a nap. But Jesus knew that Lazarus would die again. And the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave permanently was to put himself in the grave sacrificially. As Tim Keller again pointed out, the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to summon his own. If he was going to save us from death, he was going to have to go to the cross to bear the judgment for sin that we deserve. That's why when Jesus approached the tomb, instead of smiling at the prospect of putting on a great show and raising a man from a grave, he was shaking with anger and had tears streaming down his cheeks. He knew that it would cost him his life to save us from our deaths. He knew that by showing his power over death, the religious leaders who were watching what he was doing were going to use their political power to put him to death. After Jesus raised Lazarus, they immediately plotted how to put Jesus to death because of what he had done. Friends, it is only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have complete and utter confidence that God is working all things for our good. Christ Jesus is the only one who is so good and so loving that he died to save us from sin and rose from the grave to grant us new life. And even now, Romans 8 says, he's still praying for us. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, knowing what God's will is and doing it, because he was willing to do God's will which put him to death. He is willing to do anything that is good for us, knowing that whatever he asks of the Father, 
he receives. So whatever we ask, we also receive because we have been given life in him. His life is our life. As Romans 8 also tells us, what does all this prove? What does this prove to you and me? Only that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says, there is no difficulty, no distress, no danger, no famine, no sickness, no poverty, not even death, which can separate us from the love of God given to us in Christ Jesus. As he says, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Ask and you will receive. Ask God for whatever is on your heart with persistence and confidence, seeing that the point is not your persistence or your confidence, but Jesus' persistence and the Father's confidence to do what we most need, to give us what we wouldn't have even asked for in the first place, new life. But Jesus asked in our stead. He asked instead of us to give us the true and better gift, not just healing here and now, but healing from death for all eternity. He has given us resurrection life. Let's pray. King Jesus, you have risen from the grave and it has proven your love for us. We rejoice today. We remember and we seek to believe. We come to you persistently and confidently because you have loved us with an everlasting love, a love that conquered death. And you did, you did this through sacrificially putting yourself in our place. You exchanged places with us. You put yourself in the grave so that you could lift us out of it. Jesus, you are risen. You are risen indeed, and we rejoice in you today. In your name we pray. Amen.